Well, I want to invite you this morning to the book of Psalms, the Psalter. We'll look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. That word that feeds and sustains us. The word that energizes us and equips us. The word that critiques us and challenges us. As we come to this first psalm, may our lives be challenged that in this coming year, we will be people who will become more like you in your grace and your goodness. In Christ we ask. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. Have you been reading the top ten list? There are a host of them. You know the top ten theological stories of 2010? Or the top ten books by an your particular blogger, or the top ten blogs of the year. I even noticed that Sam has his own uh, top ten songs of 2010, according to Sam Filder. One of the things all those top tens have in common is the first listing was first, because that was the most important one. It might be a bit like that with the Psalms. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Why is it placed here? If there is a need in the church today, it is for that of biblical worship. So Psalm 100 may have been Psalm 1. Or with the breakdown that we see in families today. Maybe Psalm 128 should be here. Perhaps we need to start off with a grand view of the majesty and wonder of God. We might think of Psalm 139 as Psalm 1. So why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Because it packs a matter of such supreme Importance. Here we see two ways, two humanities, two destinies clearly spelled out. Jesus summed up this particular psalm in some ways 
in his Sermon on the Mount when he concludes by saying, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Psalm 1 depicts this idea in terse, stark, black, and white. As if announcing at the opening of the Psalter, let the clarity begin. The psalm is saying to us this day that nothing, nothing is so crucial in your life. Nothing is so critical in your life as you're belonging to the congregation of the righteous. This psalm will contrast for us the righteous and the wicked in a very straightforward way. And we're not going to follow that particular pattern. We'll do our teaching from that of the righteous. We won't ignore the contrast altogether, but our focus will be on the righteous. So notice first what the psalm highlights about the direction of the believer's life. Here in verses 1 and 2, the psalm shows where the righteous person gets his signal for living. In other words, what drives him, what moves the righteous person, what leads that person along. Interestingly, the psalmist begins by describing what the righteous person shuns. The happy man or the one enjoying God's blessing is the separated man. A person who is who's not in neutral, but a person who takes a stand against evil in all of its forms. The three clauses that we find in that first verse are indicators that uh, that of the Righteous man rejects the totality, all of evil. But with the help of commentators, we can categorize those phrases somewhat. The counsel of the wicked, for instance, has to do with a way of thinking, with a mindset, with a particular outlook. The way of sinners suggests their behavior, their, their pattern, their, their actions. The seat of scoffers implies a kind of belonging where, where one settles most comfortably, perhaps with the scathing unbelief that wants nothing to do with godliness and faithfulness. If we look at these phrases as to what is suitable to the wicked person, then as one writer says, we we can see the cues that person follows. We can see the direction they take in life and the company they enjoy. So how happy the person who does not. The righteous man is countercultural. He is different. He's not just going along. And make no mistake, we are not talking about what our culture understands 
as a good old boy. There's a difference here between a righteous person and a nice, easygoing, tolerant chap who likes to share a cold one with you. Now, this person stands firmly against evil in all its forms. Stories told of a lady celebrating her 104th birthday. And when asked, what is it that uh, she liked best about being 104? She quickly replied, no peer pressure. (laughs) But the righteous man, in verse 1, is not 104. And he meets plenty of peer pressure. It may cost him to be righteous, but the righteous man is the one who does not go with the flow. we, We must be clear, too, that the lure of the wicked and sinners and scoffers does not usually come to us in its worst form. It generally comes to us in a subtle, low-key kind of fashion. Perhaps from teachers or family or friends, maybe, maybe even a spouse. You know, it simply suggests that if you don't think this way, you'll not be thought of as sharp or academic or Educated. If you don't act like this, you won't be cool or with it. If you don't laugh at what we mock, we don't want any part of you. So verse 1 then is not merely description but warning. As one person suggests, it's an Old Testament version of Romans 12 too. Well, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. But the righteous person is not described here only in that of a negative approach, but we see the positive direction of the righteous person's life and what he renounces. What leads him to... Resist these forms of evil. What what enables the righteous person to renounce all the appeals of verse 1? To turn and, and walk away from it all? Well, as John Piper has been passionately pleading for many years, it is the pursuit of pleasure. The righteous person resists all these forms of of evil more for his pleasure than the pressures. Notice in verse 2, the opening statement, but his delight. You know that last word, delight. You are going to take your signals from somewhere. And this person takes his signals from the Torah, the law of the Lord. And we think of the law. We, we don't want to think of it too 
narrowly, too confining here to refer to that specifically of legal directives. Here it takes more of that of teaching or instruction or that of doctrine. It's what Joshua meditates in day and night, we're told in Joshua 1.8. And here in this psalm, it has that more full, wider meaning, simply that of the Word of God. And we're told that this Torah is now His delight. The righteous person is not a dull person. He is a person of enthusiasm, a person who is filled with excitement as it were. And he gets his from pondering God's will in God's Word. Now, now his pleasure in the Word is, is not some vague, general idea that this Word is a special Word. Indeed, it is. But his pleasure in this Word is from his preoccupation with it. Notice his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Regularly and consistently, he's working in this Word of God into his life. It may be quite like the pre-GPS days when you had to ask someone directions somewhere. and Maybe you didn't have a notepad in which to immediately take down the directions. And so as uh, you received the direction, you began repeating that direction, maybe out loud even, to yourself until you could get to your notepad to write the direction down. And even then, as you were writing it down, you were saying it out loud to yourself. And that's a form of working it in. That's what the righteous person does here with the Word of God. He's, He's working in this Word into his life. And so we see... Total immersion in the Word of God forms the basis of the believer's life. And it's his or her pleasure and preoccupation. What is yours? The counsel of the world? The counsel of the wicked? Or the Word of God? What drives your life? Which one directs your life? The psalmist is teaching us what directs the righteous person's life. And secondly, the psalm provides us with a description of the believer's life in verses 3 and 4. And he does this in picture form. He is, first of all, like a tree. Now, the text fleshes out the analogy of the tree, and one particular writer really does a good job of fleshing this out in in singular word format. He says that he is like a tree with stability, planted with vitality by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. There's productivity in the righteous person's life, and he does not wither. There's durability. And finally, we see the righteous person in all that he does, he prospers. There's prosperity. Now, you might overread that last clause and 
ask or wonder, does this mean there are no reversals or no setbacks in the righteous person's life? And no, of course not. The psalmist will come to the nasty side of life later on in the psalms, but here in a broad brush kind of approach, he's painting for us a picture of a righteous person's life in a summary kind of way without ruining it with, you know, the death of a thousand qualifications. He's simply saying to us that the one who says no to this world and yes to God's Word is the person who will be deep-rooted and lively with vitality in their life. That's not the whole picture. Because in verse 4, we see the wicked are not so. They're like chaff. Go to the threshing floor when the farmer scoops up the grain on the floor and throws it into the air and the chaff is blown away by the wind. The tree represents stability and vitality. Then the chaff depicts for us rootlessness and ruin. Notice how these persons are contrasted. In verse 3, the righteous person is described with four clauses that explain and amplify the picture of the righteous person's life. There's only one. One line for the wicked. They're depicted as chaff. It's proud. It's over. There's not much you can say about chaff. But occasionally, occasionally someone has the insight to pronounce a chaff estimate on their life. Marvin Olasky tells the story of Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune for over 30 years. Greeley, who believed in the natural goodness of man, backed the founding of some 40 communes during the 1840s, all of which fell. He advocated several other causes among them in the 1800s of free Love. He, he always seemed to be pressing for something new, always trying to usher in a man-made utopia. In 1872, he ran for president and was politically crushed. After the election, he looked back on his life and he viewed it as a waste and a sacrifice to one foolish crusade after another. And in a statement shortly before his death, he wrote these words, I stand naked before my God, the most utterly, hopelessly wretched and undone of all who ever lived. I have done more wrong 
and harm than any man who ever saw the light of day. And yet, I take God to witness that I have never intended to injure or harm anyone. But this is no excuse. End of quote. Perhaps the only thing worse than being chaffed is to know your life has been chaffed. Contrast that with the picture the 92nd Psalm gives of a righteous person's life. When the writer says the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of Yahweh. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that God is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in It's reflecting Psalm 1. Planted and still bearing fruit even into the aging years of your life. If God grants you the opportunity to live for a ripe, long life and you come toward the end, how will you be able to reflect on your life? Will it be chaff, a waste? Or will you be able to look back and to see how the God has planted you in Christ and across all these years He has sustained you in Christ, in the faith? We see what directs the righteous person's life. How that person is described. And finally, the song ushers us ahead to the destiny of the believer's life. We see the destination of both the righteous and the wicked in verses 5 and 6. The therefore introduces where these verses are all heading. And when verse 5 refers to the judgment, it means what we call the final judgment. Now, this is why Psalm 1 is so serious and so solemn. It's no piddly little religious game that we're playing here today. It's as, as if the psalm is asking us on this day what we will do when all of this life as we know it comes to an end. Are you ready for the judgment? Notice how he depicts the wicked's end. In verse 5a, they, they have no justification. They will not stand in the judgment. Nor are sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They have no communion. They're cut off. They're outside the community of God's flock. And he tells us finally, they they have no hope then. The conclusion of the psalm is the way of the wicked will perish. Who, who, Who are these wicked? 
Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis helps us to think clearly here when he reminds us the scope of this psalm seems to take in only Israel. Unlike Psalm 2, it's not looking at the pagans or the nations at large. And that does not mean that there are no wicked among the nations. We know that outside of Christ, indeed we all are, but But the primary concern here, he points out, of Psalm 1 is centered on Israel, the covenant people of God. And so it seems to be talking to and about covenant people. And so when the psalm speaks of the wicked, we we more naturally assume that they are the Israelite wicked, the People of God, wicked. What's he saying? He's simply reminding us that you can be numbered outwardly among the people of God and yet still be one of the wicked. One of those who will not stand in the judgment. Isn't this... What Jesus teaches our Savior in His Sermon on the Mount when He concludes in Matthew 7 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day will enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the apparent disciples seem to to cite their dynamic ministries as evidence that They are His. How does Jesus respond? Jesus says, you can be sound in theology. They called Him Lord. They understood He indeed was the King of God's people. You can be sincere, He says. They they not only were sound... They were enthusiastic. They said, Lord, Lord. They were even successful in their ministries. Friend, you can be sound in some of the truths that you do know. You can even be enthused in the singing and the worship of God with the preaching of His Word. You may even be successful in some ministry. Jesus warns us, and yet be false. So this psalm drives us to face that in our lives. Who are we? Well, what about the righteous in the time of judgment? The only explanation we have for the righteous is the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The word knows is is written in such a way that it's a continual action. The, The Lord continually knows the way of the righteous person's life. Now, this does not mean that the Lord merely knows the road that the righteous will take with its every twist and turn. 
Though that is indeed true. But it particularly means that God is intimately and personally concerned about every step the righteous person takes. So much so that the the God who cares about every step the righteous person will take in this world will most certainly care when he steps into judgment. And so the righteous person will be preserved at the last and not perish. As someone has said, he that has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. These are solemn matters. Did you notice the first word of the psalm is blessed? And the final word is perish. These are first things first. Face them now. Make sure today that you are among the congregation of the righteous. So how do you get in? You come to Jesus who says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is that righteous one. You notice the righteous person, if you're like me, when we were going through, you're thinking, I don't always measure up. But there is one who did. And it's Christ. And the Bible says that the righteous died for the unrighteous, that he might Bring us to God. For our sake, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Which are you? Righteous or weak? Let's pray. Our Father, such somber matters. And yet, Lord, if we but confess our sin and confess Christ, then we become that happy, that blessed person of you. May this day be a day in which many will come to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And may we in here this day count ourselves among the righteous and begin to live the life of grace in Jesus Christ. It's in His name we do pray. Amen.